we come to the conclusion of our season of waiting, waiting for Christmas. And that's been the theme of our Advent series. And so I'm bringing the culminating message in this series, although Advent has officially concluded now. Advent is, of course, that traditional period of spiritual preparation and anticipation for the coming of Christ, the coming of Christmas, and also our expectation about the reality that Christ is to come into our life every day, that he is to be incarnated in us in every way, and that there is a real return of Christ yet to come, and a real assessment of our world, a bringing of all things into balance. The name that is most traditionally applied to that day, the day of the Lord, is Judgment Day. But it's not just about bad things being dealt with, it's also about good things being rewarded. There is a reward for waiting, and I talked about that in our Christmas Eve service last night. You can uh, catch that message online if you haven't heard it here uh, yourself last night or streaming. I talked about patience in a silent night, and we associate silent night with Christmas time and maybe Christmas Eve especially. But one thing that we may not associate with Christmas so closely is what comes immediately after the silent night, which wasn't so silent after all the angels were singing and declaring the goodness of God. The shepherds were hurrying and Mary was pondering all of these things. And even while that was occurring, the Magi were in route and on their way, patiently persevering in the pathway that the Lord had lit for them with that glorious star of Bethlehem. But what happened next? After all of that, there was a sudden flight. There was a time of trial. There was hardship and threat. But the Lord was in the mix. The Lord was overseeing all. And the Lord spoke to Joseph and the Holy Family. He spoke to Joseph through a dream, as he had been doing. And he gave Joseph guidance for what to do in a time of trial. There would be a need for patience as well as urgency. There would be a need for trust as well as obedience. It was patience in a sudden flight, and it's our Christmas Day message. And the focus of this is about trust. In fact, just a week ago, I talked to you about patient trust and the story of Joseph hearing from the Lord in a dream with the affirmation that he should marry Mary, that this child that she was pregnant with was not a mistake or a result of sin, but was the plan of God and the result of all righteousness, the incarnation of all righteousness. You remember hearing about that and about Joseph's patient trust. If you weren't here for that message, you can go back and hear it online. Today, I want to talk about how that patience that had been developed in Joseph because of his obedience to hear and receive the gift of patience from the Lord, solidified, it put down roots, it grew up strong, it branched out into perseverance. Patient trust that laid the groundwork for perseverant trust. Because as much as you and I are celebrating today, and let's not limit it, celebrate as much as you may and as much as you will, there's also this reality. Every good day has another day following it. In other words, there are days of celebration and then there are days of trial. And I want our celebration today not to be afraid of whatever trial may lay ahead. I want our celebration in the spirit, the Lord wants our celebration in the spirit to receive from him 
the kind of strength, the kind of perseverant faith that is ready to keep on keeping on, that is ready to respond with obedience, that is ready for victory. And so, the story that we hear on Christmas Day today is one that involves urgent circumstances, innocent victims, and destined purposes. It's sort of a microcosm of our world, isn't it? There is always something urgent going on in this ever-spinning world, and sadly, it often involves victims, and not infrequently, what we might call innocent victims, people who don't deserve the treatment that they are receiving. All over the globe today, as the light of Christmas plays out on December 25th, 2022, while there is singing and reveling and giving of gifts, there is also suffering and violence and working of wrongs. There are innocent victims in the world today, and it may be that there are innocent victims in the room today. And I want to remind you that in the midst of urgent circumstances and in the place where we find innocent victims, there is also always a destined purpose of God that is greater than any wrong, that can overcome any hardship, that shines brighter than any darkness. And that's the real joy of Christmas. That's the real joy of Christ. That's the real promise of God. That even in the place of hardship, there is help and a plan and a purpose. In a dream, Joseph was told of the urgent circumstances. And it came in the form of a threat from King Herod. You remember King Herod. He's the one that the wise men, the magi of the east, had come to and said, we saw a star that your scriptures say is the indicator that a savior or king is being born. And we have come from afar to find him. Where is he? And rather than being pleased at this news, Herod simply pretended to be pleased. But instead, he was upset and distressed because he perceived a threat to his rule and reign. And so he said to them, you go to Bethlehem after he consulted with the experts and found that the scripture had a destined purpose for where that savior who was signified by the destined star would be born. And it was Bethlehem. And so Herod said to the wise men, go to Bethlehem, find him, and then let me know where he is so that I can worship him. But you'll remember that there was another dream from the Lord and it came to the Magi in that instance. And we looked at that last week as well. And in that dream, the Lord made it clear to them, don't go back to Herod. Don't go back the way that you came. Don't return that route. Find a new way home. And so Herod was not informed by the Magi as to where baby Jesus had been born. And Herod made a rash decision. If he could not find the very specific male child that was the source of this sign, he would kill all the male children in that region, two years old and younger. He would take a page out of Pharaoh's playbook in the days of Moses in Egypt. And he, who was supposed to be a king of Jews himself, would kill Jewish children in order to preserve and protect his place. What a wicked ruler was he. But a greater ruler is God. And so God protected his son our Savior. But there were many children that died by the sword. There were many parents. 
whose hearts were pierced the way Simeon had said to Mary in the temple on Jesus' eighth day, a sword will pierce your heart too. In fact, surely Mary and Joseph mourned as well, knowing that though they had been able to flee because of the goodness and grace of God, there were many families that felt the wrath of the sword and the pain and grief of loss. If you're in a place this Christmas day where something has pierced your heart, you're not alone. Even at the first Christmas time, there was weeping and mourning. And you may wonder, why did God not protect and preserve me? And while I'm not prepared to be able to give you a specific answer to that, I can give you a general principle. God is with you now. And if you will trust in him, he will make right the hurts that you've experienced. He will heal your heart through the branch, through the one who is the healer, Jesus Christ himself, the man of Nazareth. Ultimately, after the time of terror and immediate danger has passed, the Lord will communicate to Joseph once more and tell him it's now safe to go home, not to Bethlehem, because that was never their hometown, Mary and Joseph, but back to Nazareth in Galilee. Because the gospel writer tells us, it would be said of Jesus that he was a Nazarene. That's a tricky verse, and we'll explore it today when we talk about the branch. Let's look at these passages of scripture briefly together. I'm in Matthew chapter two. You can open to that passage yourself. And in verses 13 through 15, we see described the escape by night that is necessitated by the urgent circumstances around them. When the wise men had gone back home by a different route, an angel of the Lord again appeared to Joseph in a dream. And so, in the middle of a silent night, the spirit speaks. Get up right now, he said. Take the child and his mother and escape to Egypt. Once again, a need for patience in a hurry. The patience is trust. Trust that you're hearing from the Lord. Trust that this is accurate, but trust also that it is urgent, that it needs a response right now. Don't roll over and hit the spiritual snooze and go back to sleep because not only does your life depend upon it, but the destined plan of God. And so Joseph is attentive. And the Lord has promised through this dream and through this angelic witness that as long as they stay in Egypt, he will make known to them when it is time to come back. For the Lord shares with him, Herod is going to search for the child, for Jesus, to kill him. So immediately, Joseph woke from his dream. And can you imagine what that dream must have been like? How vivid, how strong, what a profound and penetrating sense of the spirit that must have been active in it. And yet, I don't think that such a dream is likely to come to a person who is not well-versed in the ways of the Lord, who's not intimately aware of his voice through prayer, who is not well-acquainted with the way that God works in his word. But because Joseph was a righteous man, a man of the word, a man of prayer, and a man of obedience, he knew the voice of the Lord. And he responded, during the night, the Holy Family flees and they make for the long journey to Egypt. 
This would not be easy to do in the best of conditions with a lot of preparation in the middle of the day, but they have to do it in the most dangerous of conditions with no preparation in the middle of the night. But they do it because they know that the Lord is leading and God is with them. And so they go to Egypt and stay there until the death of Herod. And now here, Matthew, the gospel writer, wants us to be aware once again, as he does over and over in his nativity story of the birth of Jesus in Matthew chapter 1 and 2, that these things that are happening, though they are surprising to the people in them, and so they, they seem to be happening sometimes without any preparation at all, it is all known to God. It has all been purposed before. It has all been prophesied. In the Old Testament, the prophet Hosea said, out of Egypt, I called my son. Now, when the prophet Hosea said that, hundreds of years before the time that Matthew is writing about, hundreds of years before the time of Jesus' birth, Hosea no doubt was well aware, and his hearers were as well, that this refers to something that had already happened, that again, in the time of Moses, God's own family, his children, the children of Israel were his son, his offspring, and he delivered them out of slavery, the danger of death that came from the wicked king Pharaoh in Egypt and the enslavement that they suffered through innocently, undeservedly. God delivered them out of that, out of Egypt. But here Matthew is making it clear to us that Hosea's statement doesn't just look back, it also looks forward. It looked forward to the coming of Christ. And so you and I have a model here that when we read this word, it's talking not only about the deliverance of Israel out of enslavement in Egypt and the deliverance of Jesus and his family out of their hiding place in Egypt, but your deliverance and mine out of the enslavement to sin and the verdict of death that comes with it. And so in the same way that we say, Christmas looks both backwards and forwards. We realize that God does this because God sees all. And that is why God is able to do what only God can do and why it's wise for you and I to follow and trust him. In your bulletin today, I have a little summary. Would you read it with me? If you're at home, you can download the bulletin as well. But here in the room, you've got it in front of you. Point number one, you see that writing in gold there? God shows us the way. Read this with me aloud, will you? Declare it. God shows us the way when there seems to be no way and can grant us time when there seems to be no time. And that's exactly what he did for Joseph and the family. Even when circumstances seem to be at their worst, and there's no lack of such times in our world and in our lives, is there? God is still and always at his best. He will help us. Don't lose heart and don't lose touch with that truth. Remember, God will help you. Turn your need to him. Turn to him in your hour of need and in your hour of celebration and festivity, in your time of joyousness, like perhaps this Christmas morning, which I hope it is for you, a joyous time. Remember how he's helped you before and remember that he will help you again. And consider how you can help fulfill his will in your life. Perseverant trust in God also positions us for protection. 
If you want God's help, if you want to be under the covering of God's grace, live according to the guidance of his word and trust in him. God ensures that we can know his path. If God needs to, he can reach you in your sleep. He can reach you in a dream. But wouldn't it be wonderful if he could reach you every day, all day, in every way? If you and I were listening to him, when we read the word, if we read the word, if we don't read the word, then how much of his word to us are we missing? So much. So read the word and pray. Share the word and witness. Study the word together. And then live the word out. Live the Lord out in your life. And God will ensure that your life follows his path. And when you slip, slip up, like I slip up sometimes too, you can confess, you can repent, you can trust that God will keep you on his path. But it's up to you and I to trust him and to do what we can do to follow him. This is a situation in which Joseph, Mary, and Jesus himself are facing a very powerful enemy, a man who rules over the region and has armies to send against them. And what have they? They have the Lord. So no matter who opposes you, if God is for you, who can really be against you? Not anyone that can prevail. Now, we're not here to fight against flesh and blood, but there are spiritual powers that oppose you. There's an enemy of your soul that wants to discourage and deceive you. But God is greater. So trust God and follow him, and he'll help you. But someone out there might say, well, if that's the case, why has God allowed so much to go wrong in my world? Why has God allowed so many bad things to happen? If that is true, then why did I lose that person that I loved? If that is true, then why didn't that job that I was searching for pan out? If that is true, then why am I dealing with this present illness? If that is true, then why am I always constantly burdened by depression or debt? If that is true, why can't I find God's help in this moment when I need it, with this relationship or this circumstance? Or why do I feel so empty inside? And when we are in situations like that, we may feel like, I don't deserve this. Or there may be someone that we know and love and we see them going through such circumstances and we try to help and we wish we could be more help, but maybe there's a temptation to say, God, why do I care more about this person than you do? On Christmas Day, it may seem a strange time to talk about weeping and mourning, but weeping and mourning is part of why Christmas came. In fact, it could be said that's exactly why Christmas came. The weeping and mourning that occurs here in the story from history 2,000 years ago is laid out in verses 16 to 18 of Matthew 2. Let's look at them together. When Herod realized that he had been outwitted by the Magi, they'd gone home a different way, they weren't going to tell him where Jesus was, he was furious. An impatient man, he. And he gave orders to kill every little boy in Bethlehem and its vicinity who were two years old and under. How can one have such a callous heart towards the most innocent victims? Before we point fingers, we ought to look at our own society and how readily and easily we dispose of human life when we find it to be 
undesirable to our purposes. What Herod did is not so unusual, and that's perhaps the great tragedy of all. But it was a tremendous bereavement. The reason that he picked two years old and younger is because the Magi had indicated that that had been essentially the period of time since the star had appeared and for them to carry out their journey. So he wasn't, uh, he wasn't going to take any chances. He was hedging his bet. Even though he did not even necessarily believe the prophecy, it was a threat to him that others did. But once again, Matthew, the gospel writer, makes us aware God knew that this was coming. And by the way, that might make it harder for us to bear because if God knew it was coming, why didn't God stop it? The prophet Jeremiah, another Old Testament prophet, had written in Jeremiah 31.5, a voice is heard in Ramah, this is the region, weeping and great mourning, Rachel, a name of one of the matriarchs, one of the wives of Israel, of Jacob, Rachel weeping for her children and refusing to be comforted because they are no more. Of course, ironically enough, Rachel's weeping occurred in the birth of her second child, Benjamin, born on the way to Bethlehem. And so in this single passage, there are so many integrated ideas that all revolve around essential truth. In the midst of our lives, there are times of trauma, hardship, pain, and loss, and they may come no matter how well we try and live our life, no matter how hard we try to follow the Lord, there are times when tragedy strikes. We look again at your bulletin and read the second statement in gold there with me. It starts with God knows, and he does indeed. Read it with me together. God knows the pains, griefs, and losses inflicted wrongly on us by others. In every hard and harsh circumstance, his mercy reaches out to us. God does care. And the question of why is such a needling, pressing question. But you know, you very rarely find something in that question of why. There's a virtue missing in it. We all can relate to the why questions. And I think if we're honest, We've all lifted them up. But very rarely within that why is there a heart of patience. And that's hard to hear because the pain is so great. And that's what's usually at the heart of those why questions. Not patience, but pain. And so God wants you to know he feels your pain. He knows your pain. In fact, Believe it or not, God knows your pain and grief even better than you do. The prophets, people like Hosea and Jeremiah, were people of pain. In fact, Jeremiah is known as the weeping prophet. He wrote a book called Lamentations. And nobody has experienced more pain on this earth in a human life than Jesus Christ. I don't just mean the pain of his suffering on the cross physically, although that's a symphony of pain from 
the time of his beating and lashing to the time of his dying on the cross that I'm sure none of us would be eager to experience. But it's really very small, minimal note in the overarching experience that Christ had of all sin weighing upon him, of all death and of the silence between him and God. There was something in Christ's experience on the cross that not only goes beyond every human experience of pain, but also encompasses it. No one can relate to your pain and give you greater comfort than the man of sorrows acquainted with sin, who is Jesus Christ. But God has a purpose as tests and trials come in our life. And if we would let them lead us to the Lord, then even in our weeping and mourning, even in our times of grieving, even in our situations of suffering, there can be peace, patience, purpose, deliverance, hope. There is much suffering that occurs in the world due to wickedness. Some of it is the result of human sin. Some of it is the result of spiritual opposition. Some of it is the natural occurrence of a fallen world. And it's a sad situation. The selfishness of people accounts for many of the sufferings in our world. But the goodness of God accounts for all of our world's beauty and goodness. And it is greater. God also knows the value of mourning. There is something to be learned in our suffering. Maybe this week you would take a look at Romans chapter 12, verse 15, or James chapter 4, verse 9. You would see that when we have the opportunity to walk alongside others that are suffering, to mourn with those who mourn and to grieve with those who grieve and to be with those in need and in their loneliness and share in the sorrows of others in order to share the love of Jesus with them, we are turning mourning into gladness. We are taking something sorrowful and dark and allowing the light of the Lord to shine through us in it. And remember, whatever circumstance you're facing now or in the future, God's goodness will ultimately turn our sorrow into everlasting joy. Continue to trust God, even in the face of injustice and grief. Finally, our trust is born out of this assurance. There is a destined purpose of God, and it's about bringing us to be with him. I want to conclude our Christmas Day message today by talking about coming home. There's a wonderful old hymn that I've referenced before and even sometimes sung from this platform that says, softly and tenderly, Jesus is calling, come home. Oh, sinner, come home. There's another song that's often heard at this time of year that says, I'll be home for Christmas. Because there's nothing warmer in our hearts and minds on a cold night in a winter place far away from where we came from to think of coming home. Coming home to the warmth of the hearth and the heart of family. And that really relates to coming to God. Because God is the father of us all. And God is saying, come home for Christmas. Come back to me. If any of us have struggled 
in trusting the Lord in recent times, if we have felt that our waiting has us wearied, if we are at a place where we think, how long, how long? Remember this. God has you where you are because he has a purpose for you where you are, but he has a plan for where he will take you next. And he will let you know when it's time for you to go. Matthew chapter 2, verses 19 to 23, describe the family of Jesus in Egypt and their ultimate return home. After Herod had died, that wicked king, his life came to an end. Imagine what happened when that king had to face the king. In any case, an angel of the Lord once again appeared to Joseph in a dream. And he said to him, while they were still in Egypt, get up once again and go now. Take the child and his mother and go to the land of Israel. For those who were trying to take the child's life are dead. The ones that were trying to kill, they themselves have died. And so Joseph got up and took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. You'll notice the similarity of structure of the language. The evangelist Matthew wants us to be aware that Joseph was simply doing what God told him to do when and how God told him to do it. What a blessing there is in obedience. You don't have to understand it all, but you just have to trust. We want to understand and then we'll trust. But that's not faith. That's just having it proved for you. Faith is hearing and believing and obeying. Now then Joseph heard that Archelaus was reigning in Judea. Archelaus is one of the sons of Herod and had taken a portion of Herod's role uh, as his own. And so Joseph was concerned because if they were to go through Judea and Archelaus was of the same mindset as his father Herod, then they might end up in the same situation. But the Lord spoke to him in yet another dream. And in that dream, the Lord said, go to the district of Galilee. And of course, that was for Joseph and Mary going home, home to Nazareth. Now here, Matthew says, this fulfills what was said through the prophets that he, the Messiah, would be called a Nazarene. There's not a precise place in the Hebrew Bible that we have that we can say for a certainty is what Matthew has in mind here. And that's unusual because in every other instance in which Matthew has referenced the prophets in these first two chapters of his gospel, we have specific related points. But it is presumable that what he is referring to here is an etymological uh, relationship. That is a, a relationship in the language between the word for the town of Nazareth and the Hebrew word for branch. There is in Isaiah the prophecy that says that out of the root of Jesse, a branch will spring forth. Jesse, as you will hear more about in 2023, as God wills, it's part of our destined purpose of study. We are going to study the boy born in Bethlehem, not Jesus, although we always talk about Jesus, but David. David, who would become king, was the son of Jesse. And so in the prophet Isaiah, there was a, a prophecy about a Messiah to come who would be a king in the Davidic dynasty, a descendant of David, a descendant of Jesse, who would be a branch, a shoot of life, a fruitful source. Now in John chapter 15, Jesus says, I am the vine, you are the branches. And yet in this, 
we also can see that Jesus is himself a branch because the vine is sort of the mother branch or father branch, if you will, to all the branches that, that uh, grow forth from it. And even as you and I are called Christians because he is the Christ, so we also could be branches off of this branch, branches in the vine. The word for Nazareth is possibly related to this Hebrew term for branch. There is also a relationship to the Nazarite vow, one who dedicated themselves to God and received strength in the spirit because of it, like, for instance, Samson, who was a Nazarite, or also the prophet Samuel. I make all of these references because in them you can hear that the things that we have been studying, PCF, as this year, and the things that we will be studying in the year to come, they are rooted in a way in this statement about the branch who is our source, and he is the Christ of Christmas. Look with me at your bulletin here. I'm going to ask you to read this final passage with me in just a moment. But let me say some concluding thoughts on point number three. We don't yet see just how God is turning together all things for our good. But we know that it's true if we believe the word. And Romans 8.28 says it. If you love the Lord, you're called according to his purpose. And his purpose is a destiny for you that will work even the worst things into a place of blessing. Amen. We can't see that. So if you're struggling to see it with the eyes of flesh, you're going to be frustrated. Instead, be patient. God's purpose is there. Don't look in the flesh. Look in the spirit and trust that even what you can't see with your eyes, you can know in your heart because it's said in God's word. And after all, part of the reason we can't see it with the flesh is that it is greater and better than what flesh can conceive. Because eye hasn't seen, ear hasn't heard, nor has the mind of a human being yet conceived all the good that God has in store, the destiny that he has planned for his people. And so in this time, you can carry the light in you even when it's dark around you. In this time, you can carry patience within you and persevere in it because God has called you. You can continue to trust God no matter what comes. Remember this Christmas morning, the next morning when you face a trial, a temptation, a hardship. And remember, God is good enough to keep you on his path even through that. He's already planned how your trial can be a part of his triumph. He's already determined that some of those things are a worthy test to bring out his best in you so that you can be blessed, to be a blessing this Christmas, let's determine to allow God's love to lead our path. And as we prepare to enter into 2023, let's be determined to follow that path according to God's purpose. What is God's purpose for you? Will you read this final phrase with me here, the one that says God makes his plans? Because he has plans for you, my friend, and they are good, not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. Read together. God makes his plans and purposes knowable to us in his word and by his spirit. He has a purpose of fruitfulness ready to be realized by those who believe, receive, and persevere in him. 
Lord, we come to you this Christmas day full of the joy of the season, but also aware of the hardship of the world. And so we ask, Lord, that you would fill us to overflowing with the grace, the patient, persevering trust to follow you and to carry this hope, this joy, this love of Christmas with us into all our days, into every circumstance and situation and to every person that we meet. And Father, for any that find themselves feeling far from you today, Lord, I pray that you would make them aware that to be far from you is to be far from home, to be far from the embrace of a loving parent. Even those who never knew a loving parent here on earth can know the most loving parent, which is you, our Heavenly Father. I pray, Lord, that you would reach out to them today with those arms that are the branches of the tree of life, laden with the fruit of life, the fruit of forgiveness and love, of healing and hope, of restoration and renewal. I pray, Lord, that you would enter the heart of everyone ready and willing to receive you today, the greatest gift of Christmas. And for everyone whose heart is opened in that fashion, I pray that you would embrace the Lord who embraces you and receive in him the assurance of his love and of your eternal destiny, everlasting life in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Now go into this world with joy and tell it from every mountain that Jesus Christ is born. Rejoice and revel because the Lord is alive. Hallelujah. Merry Christmas and God bless you all.